0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week you'll hear compelling conversations from events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a non-partisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features Nicholas Burns and Strobe Talbot discussing Russia and Putinism. Burns is director of the Aspen Strategy Group, and Talbot is an ASG member. In this discussion, they are following up on a lecture Talbot gave at the Aspen Institute back in August. That lecture, entitled Putinism, the Backstory, focused on Russia's current policies, turning a lens on what Talbot asserts are the undoing of recent reforms. Here, Burns asked Talbot to reflect on what has changed and what hasn't over the last eight months. Co-chaired by Brent Scowcroft and Joseph Nye, the Aspen Strategy Group draws on a membership of experts from diverse realms of policy and varying political orientation. ASG represents people with the kind of diversity and energy that can make headway in addressing foreign and security policy challenges. Burns is the Roy and Barbara Goodman Family Professor of Diplomacy and International Relations at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He is a senior counselor at the Cohen Group. He also writes a bi-weekly column for the Boston Globe and is a member of Secretary of State John Kerry's Foreign Affairs Policy Board. Talbot is president of the Brookings Institution and chairman of Secretary Kerry's Foreign Affairs Policy Board. He was deputy secretary of state for seven years during the Clinton administration. Here are Nicholas Burns and Strobe Talbot.
1: I'm Nick Burns, director of the Aspen Strategy Group. I also teach at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. It's a great honor to be here with my good friend Strobe Talbot, president of the Brookings Institution and former deputy secretary of state. Strobe, you gave the annual Ernest May Memorial Lecture in Aspen, Colorado for the Aspen Strategy Group, in the summer of 2014, and today I'd like to revisit some segments of that lecture and get your thoughts about what has changed and what hasn't in Russia since you made those remarks. Stroh, back in August, your lecture centered on the theme redux, which is Latin for lead back, meaning that Russian policies today might be understood as undoing some of the revolutionary reforms in the immediate post-Soviet past, and that President Putin himself is very much rooted in the past. Of Russian history. You cited an example of this happening more than once throughout the long history in Russia. Let's take a listen.
2: Now, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the last thing
1: that Gorbachev
2: wanted to see, and therefore it was very much the wedge issue that Yeltsin used to replace Gorbachev uh, in the Kremlin and to take down the hammer and sickle flag over the Kremlin and run up the Russian tricolor but on most other important issues. The transition from Gorbachev to Yeltsin was, in its essence and in its overall direction, almost seamless. Those issues included how Russia should should govern itself and how it should behave beyond its own borders. For Yeltsin, that meant, in the first instance, deciding where Russia's borders were. The decision that he made was crucial to what happened in the years that followed and also quite crucial to what didn't happen. The inter-republic borders of the old USSR became the international borders of the Commonwealth of Independent States. There would be no redrawing of the political map to align with the ethnographic one. Yeltsin's insistence on that point further riled his already very, very tough relationships with the enemies that he inherited from Gorbachev. For them, the bloody flag grievance was not just the loss of territory, not just the loss of the system, but the stranding, as they saw it, of 25 million ethnic Russians in what were now 14 neighboring states. A common phrase that was mumbled and growled and sometimes screamed was the mutilation of Mother Russia, leaving her orphans outside the care of Moscow. Much as Pavlov had turned against Gorbachev, Yeltsin's own vice president, Alexander Rutskoy, turned against him. A number of people in the room, I'm pretty sure Bob Legvold saw this, had a chance to visit Rutskoy in his office in Moscow where he had a huge map, not of the Commonwealth of Independent States but of the USSR. And he would tell visitors, that's the past but it's also the future. We'll get it back. In other words redux. The first step Rutskoy often said, would be the recovery of Crimea.
1: Strobe, you've been a student of Russian history since your teenage years, since your days at Yale. Uh, you gave the Inners May lecture to help us think about what is it in the Russian past that might help us explain Russian behavior today in Ukraine and Crimea.
2: Well, it's a, it's a very pertinent question because a lot of what we're seeing in Russia today is an echo of Debates, grievances, and aspirations that go back uh, centuries. I would say that there are a couple of key things about Russia's history that uh, bear on what's happening now. One is that while Russia is a bi continental uh, country, uh, it's uh, of course stretches all the way across the Eurasian continent, uh, back in Soviet times, it was, that meant 11 time zones. It is also a, a European com- country. Uh, but, unlike other countries in Europe, it did not really experience the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, uh, or even the Industrial Revolution. There were small pockets of the elite uh, that were tied into the Enlightenment but the country as a whole missed that. A- another issue, of course, was that uh, one of the downsides of being a giant country is that you have a lot of neighbors. I mean, even today, yeah. Russia has 14 contiguous neighbors. Uh, and as the country was forming, a lot of those neighbors were extremely hostile. The uh, uh, the, the poster child, child uh, of course, is Genghis Khan, Uh who even started when he was a child, being uh, uh, an expansionist. Uh, And then, of course, uh, he was coming from the East, and then uh, Napoleon and Hitler came from the West. So that has uh, given uh, many Russians over the generations a sense to be uh, very wary about neighbors and also uh, to make uh, security not just a matter of Protecting yourself against potential uh, invaders, but uh, preempting those invaders, which, of course, contributed to the expansionist, uh, the expansionist tendencies that Russia has had back from the Tsarist times into the uh, Soviet times and now into the uh, the Putin uh, the Putin era. And the last thing I would mention, Nick, is that particularly in the 19th century, there was a debate, uh, particularly among uh, cultural figures and writers and intellectuals, that was often characterized as the Slavophiles versus the Westerners. The Slavophiles believed in the unique virtues and distinctiveness of the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, and the kind of uh, mystique of the Slavic soul and that kind of thing. And that gave them uh, a a reason for sort of holding off the rest of the world. Whereas the westernizers, who tended to be reformers, wanted to see Russia join the rest of the world. And that is very much uh, a debate uh, that is uh, going on right now in Russia.
1: So when we look at... Russian history and think of some of the more famous or even in Russian eyes infamous episodes Napoleon's invasion of Russia uh, to the gates of Moscow in the early 19th century, Hitler's invasion in July 1941. Is this Russian concern of strategic depth, meaning they need buffer of lands between them and some of the other powerful states of the West, is it understandable in the 21st century?
2: It's... Uh Understandable, but it's highly regrettable. Uh, but you put the, the matter exactly right. Uh, I can remember a couple of uh, people that I studied with on Russian history uh, back in those early days who came up with versions of the following saying, and that is uh, Russians will not feel entirely secure unless all of their neighbors feel entirely insecure.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I
2: think uh, Putin is a throwback uh, to precisely that uh, concept.
1: So Stalin sought strategic depth after the Second World War. He basically, most of the East European states ended up in the Warsaw Pact. Uh, we called some of them captive nations. They were a part of the communist bloc, only freed, really, in 1989, 90, and 91. Is Putin creating a version of that now if you think of intimidation of Armenia and Georgia to the south, Moldova, Ukraine and Belarus to the west? Is this a modern version of what Stalin and even some of the czars practiced?
2: The short answer is yes. I think you, you've you got it. Now, that doesn't mean that he uh, believes that he can recreate the USSR uh, per se, but he talks very candidly about Russia's right uh, to have a sphere of influence Uh, and uh, it's for exactly the what you might call uh, the aggressive defensiveness uh, the offensive defense uh, preempt your enemy but there's another factor there as well and it goes a little bit back to the Slavophiles of the 19th century and that is that uh Vladimir Putin, it's a little hard to define his ideology, but the closest thing that he has to a kind of guiding ideology is Russian chauvinism, and uh, he. it's been most uh, dramatically on display, of course, in Ukraine, where he, uh, shortly after the Maidan and uh, Ukraine's population's uh, overwhelming desire to affiliate with the West in different ways, Putin came out and said on a number of occasions, we Russians have not just a right but an obligation to protect what he called our compatriots, Uh, even though those, and I'm putting the word in quotation marks here, those compatriots are not compatriots in that they are citizens of another country. So that has also fed this expansionist uh, theme that is now so nakedly apparent in his policies.
1: And of course of all of these candidates to be buffer states, the largest, the most strategically important, the one that's most intertwined socially, politically, historically with the Russian people is Ukraine. Uh, and that's where this drama of this podcast uh, begins. It was Putin's invasion of Crimea. But take us back a little bit. and Rus, 1,000 years ago, so important to the Orthodox Church. Can, you know, can, can someone like Putin, as you understand him, imagine a Ukraine that's totally independent and separate well, from uh, Russia? Th-
2: this is a very complicated issue. Uh, and while it's, uh, it's clear from our conversation and, uh, and the, uh, the lecture in Aspen uh, last summer, that I uh, think that uh, Putin is thoroughly bad news, he has tapped into a deep emotional either ambivalence or grievance uh, or uh, nostalgia that many, many Russians have about Ukraine. Uh, And you alluded to this in the way you you asked the question. The cradle of Russian civilization is, or uh, was, called Kievan Rus, and that means around Thank you
1: for uh, correcting my mispronunciation. Uh, <laughs> Kievan Rus, yeah.
2: which uh, is, of course, the area around Kiev. And the reason for that has to do with geography and history. The Russian Orthodox faith is uh, a, uh, an extension, uh, a close relative... Of the Greek Orthodox faith, uh, we call the alphabet that the Russians use the Cyrillic alphabet because mm-hmm. of uh, Saint Cyril and his mm-hmm. and his uh, fellow Saint Methodius, who came up from what was then Byzantium to Christianize the Slavic trial, uh, tribes of the area that's now Macedonia and, uh, and, and north of there, um, and that uh, led to a uh, flowering of civilization that lasted through the Byzantine period. And then when the Byzantine period gave way to uh, what is now a a much more Muslim culture, the center of gravity, as it were, moved further north. But that didn't mean all the people moved further north. A lot of the major figures of Russian literature, music, culture uh, were born in Ukraine had Ukrainian names uh, in the many years that I spent uh, going in and out of the Soviet Union and then post-Soviet Russia I can't i can't tell you how many people I knew who thought of themselves as both Ukrainians and Russian mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, at, until very very late in the Gorbachev period they had no inkling that these would be two different uh, states. So that's just plain hard for them to get used to. But the last point I would make is very important to keep in mind as Putin continues to perpetrate his big lie about how all this uh, crisis got started. It's not as though the West moved in uh, or uh, sent in spies to uh, break up the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union broke up uh, because of factors that were completely internal to the Soviet Union uh, itself. It was a combination of people in all of the 15 constituent republics of the USSR being sick and tired of a system that simply wasn't serving them very well, and reformist leaders that came into power in the late 1980s and early 1990s. George H.W. Bush, who I think is one of the great foreign policy presidents we've ever had in this country, actually did himself some harm in his campaign for re-election in 1992 because uh, two years before, uh, a year before in uh, the summer of 1991, he flew to Moscow to give Gorbachev support, including keeping the USSR together, and then flew down to uh, Ukraine and gave a speech that Bill Sapphire called the kitchen. I was there. Chicken (laughs) Kiev. Chicken Kiev. uh, Which uh, was basically saying, come on, you Ukrainians. Give this reformer back in Moscow a chance. Don't head for the exits. To put it mildly, the Ukrainians were not convinced, and American Ukrainians or Ukrainian-Americans, particularly in Pennsylvania, turned uh, against uh, Bush in ways that uh, hurt his uh,
1: re-election. Right. Um, And just some, some recent history before we get back to the present um, when I worked for President George H.W. Bush on December 25, 1991, when the Soviet Union imploded, imploded into 15 different states, Ukraine was one. And we Americans didn't cause that to happen, but we accepted it. We established diplomatic relations. You then joined the State Department as ambassador at large in charge of our policy towards all these countries. We had a chance to work together, and you played a key role uh, in 1994 in ensuring that Ukraine would give up the nuclear weapons that were on its territory, along with those of Belarus and Kazakhstan, in return for which President Clinton, the British Prime Minister, and Russian President Yeltsin provided security assurances in the event that Ukraine's sovereignty would ever come into question. Take us back there for a moment.
2: Well, you've summarized it very, very accurately. One of the arguments that the Ukrainians used Uh, when we, the United States, and much of the rest of the world, not to mention their big neighbors to the north, the Russians were beating up on them and basically saying, we don't want to have four nuclear-armed states on the territory of what had been a single superpower state. Let's have Russia be the only successor nuclear power of the USSR. And one of their arguments was, well, what what if Russia breaks bad one of these days? What if uh, they go back on the offensive? We need to have our own nuclear deterrent. Now, by the way, the, uh, the Russian, uh, the Soviet government had a, a high degree of control, of course, over all of these uh, weapons. Uh, and it was to address precisely that concern that uh, President Clinton and, uh, uh, and the UK government uh, joined with Russia to provide assurances, and you were very careful in the words that you used. Not guarantees. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was not a uh, security guarantee because that that would have meant that Britain and the United States would come to Ukraine's uh, defense militarily if Ukraine were ever the victim of Russian uh, aggression. And in order for that to happen, Ukraine would have to be in NATO, which was not in the cards then, and it's not in the cards now.
1: Right. Um, You then became Deputy Secretary of State for President Clinton and Secretary of State Warren Christopher, then Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. You continued to be the lead U.S. government official in Russia, and in 1999, if I'm not mistaken, you met uh, a younger Vladimir Putin. Tell us about that first meeting with
2: him. We were all younger then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. um, I uh, I actually first heard the name, uh, not in a way that made me think I would ever hear of it again, when President Clinton made a trip in early 1996, yeah. flying uh, uh, Air Force One directly from Tokyo to uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, and it was a short uh, stop and a miserable one from President Clinton's vantage point, because he was not allowed to have any contact whatsoever with the uh, people of St. Petersburg. They would rush him around at 80 miles an hour in the streets. Uh, they put him, all the meals were in literally, in one case, a cave. Uh, so that there, it seemed to be designed for there to be no chance for him to get out and meet the people. Which as were, he had done. Uh, as Bill Clinton <laughs> really wanted to do. Yeah. And when he got back on the plane to fly down to Moscow, he used some fairly salty language, <clears throat> saying, That was about the worst trip, I've, the worst stop I've ever had on any trip I've ever made. Well, what, what's going on there? And Jim Collins, who was our uh, ambassador, our of ambassador. Guy, uh, said, Well, our understanding is that there's this deputy mayor uh, in St. Petersburg who's, in, who's got a KGB background and who's been handling the uh, security for this, and he have decided to take it very, very far.
1: Vladimir Putin was trained as a KGB officer in the Cold War Soviet period. He made an astronomical ascent to the top of the Russian leadership strobe. You had the chance to meet with Putin when he was Yeltsin's national security advisor before he came, became president. Let's hear how you described that meeting.
2: It marked, to the best of my knowledge at least, Vladimir Putin's emergence as a visible figure in the backstory of the ism that now bears his name. So we're talking June 1999. A ceasefire is in effect both on the ground and in the skies over Serbia. Tory and I made a trip to Moscow with an interagency delegation to put the finishing touches on the arrangement that Chernomyrdin had endorsed. While we were there, the deal started to come unra- unraveled. We had Two, three stars of our own uh, from OSD and JCS, Doc Vogelsang and George Casey. And they held a separate meeting uh, with Ivashov and the military. Uh, And Ivashov used that meeting to basically reassert the demand for an independent Russian sector while adding a threat that if NATO did not back down and give them a sector of their own, they would establish one unilaterally. Meanwhile, a Russian armored unit attached to the international peacekeeping force in Bosnia suddenly pulled up stakes and set off on a mad dash eastward, presumably towards Kosovo. I asked for an urgent meeting with President Yeltsin. I was told he was indisposed, and I knew what that meant. So we had to settle for a meeting with his relatively newly appointed national security adviser, Vladimir Putin. It was, at the time, and all the more in retrospect, a totally creepy encounter. (laughs) His manner, which sticks with me to this day, was superficially cool, professional, and courteous. But the iciness and the controlled contempt were just under the surface. But that's tonal. The really interesting thing about it was substance. And what struck us most was the aplomb, the brazenness, and the smugness with which he lied. He had to know exactly what the military was up to. Yet he assured us categorically that the terms that Chernomyrden had agreed to were still valid, that nothing untoward, as he put it, was going to happen to, uh, to upset the hard-won peace uh, and the deal that brought about that peace. Then when we told him about the threat that ivashov had made to our own generals, uh, who were meeting just a couple of blocks away, Putin claimed, gratuitously, and not to mention uh, implausibly, that he had never heard of this Ivyshov. It's a little bit like Sandy Berger saying that he never heard of George Casey uh, in the midst of uh, the single most important piece of diplomacy going on uh, in, uh, in, in the, at that time. Anyway... Within hours, the Russian unit of about 250 troops was setting up a base camp at the Pristina airport. Our own delegation ended up setting up a kind of base camp of our own, although we didn't get to sleep, uh, in the bowels of the defense ministry. We pulled an all-nighter there, uh, trying to defuse the crisis. Those talks were very, very tough, but they were tame. Compared to the knockdown, dragout, shouting match that we both wist- witnessed with our eyes and could hear down the corridor. It was almost as though our hosts were throwing furniture at each other among the Russians. On one side were the defense minister, Marshal Igor Sergeyev, and the foreign minister, Igor Ivanov. Squared off against them was the chief of the general staff. Anatoly Kvashnin, who was clearly behind the Pristina N run, and who was no doubt the person who had been issuing the orders to Ivashov to obstruct the Chernomirden mission. So, to make a long and bizarre story short, Sergeyev ultimately prevailed over Kvashnin, but just barely, and not until Yeltsin reemerged from his indisposition. To put the original deal back in place.
1: And then you um, had a final meeting with him, I think, before you left your post, before the Clinton administration ended, if I'm not mistaken, in 2000. He became uh, very close to President, uh, National Security Advisor, and then President yes. uh, of Russia.
2: Yes, that was in, uh, there were a couple of meetings, but the one that I remember best was in uh, May of uh, 1999, I'm sorry, 2000, uh, when President Clinton went to Moscow uh, essentially to uh, introduce himself uh, to Putin whom he'd already met on a couple of times but on his own turf, and also to say goodbye to Boris Yeltsin yeah And uh, Putin uh, betr- showed characteristics of uh, a kind of cool, almost contemptuous attitude. Uh, towards the West. Uh, he was quite dismissive of a number of things that the US was hoping Russian-American partnership would have allowed to go forward. There was, a, there was definitely an inkling at that time that this was going to be a whole new ball game.
1: So we fast forward to our own time, to the Sochi Olympics, to the invasion of Crimea, the annexation of Crimea by the Russian president and Duma, and now over the last year according to the State Department very recently, Russian troops coming across the border from Russia into Ukraine uh, and essentially dividing eastern Ukraine from the rest of Ukraine, supporting the pro-Russia, pro-Moscow separatists. Where does this end and what's the right, what's the right reaction by President Obama and Chancellor Merkel of Germany?
2: Well, let's start with what's actually happening there. And you've uh, once again described it uh, very accurately. Uh... But to put it in its uh, both uh, frankest terms but also accurate terms, the Russian Federation has been waging war for well over a year against a neighboring state. Yeah. Uh, and the casus belli for that war uh, makes uh, Russia's aggression all the more inexcusable under international law. Uh, and that is that the Ukrainian government was exercising its uh, uh, sovereign right to develop a, an affiliation with the European mm-hmm. Union. So that's the bottom line. And it's not It's not a hybrid war. It's not a gray war. It's a war war. Uh, as, as you say, uh, there are Russian troops, many of them now in uniform. Uh, others... Uh, Little Green is Concealed. It, concealed. Yeah. Uh, there is uh, lethal, offensive Russian uh, armaments on uh, in, on the uh, territory uh, of Ukraine. The most grotesque example of that, of course, was the uh, surface-to-air missile launcher that uh, brought down the Malaysian airliner uh, last summer. Uh But there are also these um, uh, separatists uh, who are Ukrainian and uh, are not completely under the control of Russia. And I think uh, there is uh, growing evidence that there are also uh, units from Serbia, which has its own grievances against the West and its own affinity uh, to Russia, and Chechnya. Uh, a Muslim area in the yeah. North Caucasus, as part of the Russian Federation, and I, th- I think there is a bit of a Frankenstein's monster, maybe monsters plural, phenomenon mm-hmm. are going on here. I don't think that Putin has control over all of these players. Uh, I uh, obviously am not an apologist for him, but I, I'm quite certain he didn't issue orders to shoot down a Malaysian airliner, uh, th- this is, uh, this has got there are a lot of wild cards, uh, and you ask what's going to happen? The worst that could happen is we could uh, see uh, what could start as a one-off accident uh, grow into something much worse, particularly if the Russians were to probe the seriousness of the United States and NATO's defense commitment to the Baltic states. Right. uh, Which would, uh, if they were to do that, that could trigger a crisis that could actually bring about a direct conflict between NATO and uh,
1: and Russia. Let me ask you two policy questions that I think will probably be debated in 2016 as people run for the presidency uh, and that President Obama needs to think about. One is what now should the United States do to support Ukraine? We've tried to convince the IMF and World Bank to convey greater economic assistance. There's a proposal by some inside and government that we should arm Ukraine to drive up the cost to Putin and to allow the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Do you favor that?
2: Uh, I do, and I'm one of the some. A uh, colleague of mine, uh, Steve Pfeiffer, and a number of our uh, colleagues uh, here on Think Tank Row in, in uh, Washington uh, have uh, joined to advocate Lethal defensive weapons and uh, let me just give you quickly the rationale for that Uh, uh, the majority of the casualties that have been caused by the Russian invasion occupation, virtual annexation of large part, well it's it's only about 7% of the the country but it's about 10% of the the, uh, population Uh, the the majority of the casualties on the Ukrainian side are the result of artillery and mortars And so if the Ukrainian government were to succeed in what uh, President Poroshenko has repeatedly asked for, to have uh, counter munitions that would allow them to knock out artillery installations and mortar batteries that are on Ukrainian territory killing Ukrainian citizens, that doesn't seem to us to be a a provocation. It seems uh, only... Uh, just Now, you you started, though, with what I think is a very key question, and that is that uh, there's no saving Ukraine unless Ukraine saves itself. Right. Uh, when you and I uh, first got to know each other, Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union. As it moved into the post-Soviet period, it never went through a reform period. They didn't have their Yavlinsky's and their Gaidars and their Yeltsin's. And as a result, this is a country that has got 20 years of lousy government governance, or you could say 90 years, or you could say 300 years. Uh, they've never had reform. They are now having reform. And uh, N- Natalie Juresko, the finance minister of Ukraine, uh, who is uh, a... Uh, Ukrainian-American, and you and I both met her as long as 25 years ago when we yeah. were first going to uh, post-Soviet Ukraine. She has been in Washington on several occasions recently and has really gotten the attention and the ad- admiration and the support of U.S. Government officials and the IMF and the World Bank uh, for the proposition that 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 uh, the Poroshenko government is finally taking on real reforms.
1: Right. Um, And on the question of do we defend Ukraine, President Obama and Chancellor Merkel, the NATO leadership, have taken the position we have no legal obligation, no ethical obligation to defend Ukraine militarily, and of course Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but the Baltic countries are. And as people look ahead in 2015 and 16, where might President Putin strike next Um, Where do you think it will be? Could it be in the Baltic countries, Estonia with its one-quarter of its population, ethnic Russian, Latvia, one-third of its population? They're NATO members. They come under the NATO security umbrella. Um, Do you think President Putin Mm -hmm. would see it in his interest to try to destabilize those countries? I
2: think one one of the things to worry about here is the force of this single man Uh, It's always important who the leader of a country is. It's particularly important in Russia because it is such a hierarchical, there there is a vertical of power, to use a a phrase that uh, Putin likes himself, and he's at the top of the vertical of power. His personality has, over the years, uh, including, by the way, in uh, psychological assessments made of him by his KGB superiors back in the 80s, it, it contains a streak of recklessness, and you put recklessness together with paranoia, and that can be a little bit of nitro and a little bit of glycerin. Uh, so I worry uh, about that. I think that's, uh, however, that he is—he's not insane. He's, he certainly doesn't want to get Russia into a war with the West. Uh, we have to do everything possible to make sure he understands that the, what the so-called uh, in Europe, former U.S. Perm Rep permanent representative of the United States at NATO. You know what Article 5 is, and everyone listening to this podcast should know what it means. It means that an attack on one member of the alliance is an attack on the alliance as a whole, and we're going to take action. He's got to be persuaded of that. I think the more dangerous uh, target is in this strategic limbo, and that's uh, that's Moldova, which has a it, its own... Uh, enclave that is basically run by the Russians. Transnistria. Transnistria. It's also got a whole lot of troops that would be useful to Putin to move into uh, Ukraine and particularly uh, into Odessa if uh, that fighting were to uh, burst into the open. So that's, that, that would be, I think, the next thing to worry about.
1: Two final questions, Strobe, that our listeners might be interested in. The first is, we were talking about the Baltic countries. They're members of NATO. They were taken in in 2004. The United States led the way in bringing them in. If President Putin attacked them, we would have to defend the Baltic States. So strategic deterrence um, would indicate that Putin has to believe that President Obama would defend the Baltic States. Do you think Putin believes that?
2: I don't know. I sure hope so. And I hope that President Obama Uh, and his successor, this is going to be a long time, will do everything possible, including, by the way, putting in additional American troops on the ground, the famous boots on the ground. Uh, And it would help a lot if our European allies were to do the same.
1: Right. I agree very much with that. Final question. Putin's a young man. He's in his early 60s. He may become president for life. We don't know. But it's safe to assume that the next American president following President Obama will have to deal with Vladimir Putin. Um, How do we do two things at once and balance two competing American objectives towards Russia? To continue the sanctions, to continue to try to over-Ukraine, Russia's actions in Ukraine, to try to contain the worst aspects of Russian recklessness and behavior. And on the other hand, to continue to work with the Russian Federation on the Iran nuclear issue where they're so important, on North Korea trying to contain Kim Jong-un, on counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, where we do have some interest with Russia. How do you, you're a veteran of a senior levels, the highest levels of government, how do you balance those two competing objectives?
2: Well, I think we as a country, Nick, have had uh, many decades of experience with two-track policies. Uh, it goes back to George Kennan, who uh, coined the phrase containment, although he became disillusioned with it afterwards. That's another story, another podcast. <laughs> but uh, he, even when he was designing the concept of containment, he also talked about engaging with the Russian people. And that, I think, is both essential and potentially promising. The Russia today, over which Putin... Uh, presides almost like a czar, is not like czarist Russia, it's not like Stalinist Russia, it's a much more globalized country. There is an entire generation now that doesn't, that wasn't even alive. I mean, as we're talking about 25 years ago, a quarter of a century uh, during the Soviet period, uh, Russians want to be part of the world.
1: Yeah.
2: If they're rich, they want to keep their yachts in, uh, on the Riviera and send their kids to New England and, and British. Hopefully uh, to Harvard. Uh, pardon? Hopefully to Harvard University, always, prefer, maybe I, even I, Yale. I would prefer Yale, but <laughs> that, that's, the, that's our only point of disagreement so far in this, uh, this discussion. <laughs> uh, and, but the, but the, more important, perhaps, is the middle class. And there is now a middle class. Uh, yes, Putin is popular, but that's partly because the uh, state monopoly of the media gives them only one side of the story. They do not want to be pariahs in the eyes of the world. So I think that the, the essential answer to your question is we are firm and clear in containment of behavior, containment and punishment of uh, behavior that is simply unacceptable, particularly in the 21st century while at the same time doing everything we can to engage, not just with the Russian government on those issues like Iran where we agree, but with the Russian civil society, which is still growing.
1: Strobe, last summer you outlined in the Ernest May Memorial Lecture why you believe that Putin's power will not last. Let's listen to a segment of that conversation right now.
2: I would bet for two reasons that that is not going to be the case that Putinism is not going to last that long. The first reason is what is new about Putinism, and that is his conviction that the substitution for Marxism-Leninism as an ideology for Russia should be nationalism, great Russian chauvinism, basing Russian statehood on ethnicity. He's used that in Ukraine to expand Russian territory but the concept is a double-edged sword. It could shrink Russian territory. Vast parts of that vast country are populated by non-Russians and a Russian chauvinist in the Kremlin who wears a crucifix around his neck, which is on display every time he takes his shirt off, may be hastening the day when the Caucasus and Central Asia will be even more vulnerable to jihadists and those who have dreams of a Caucasus caliphate uh, in the South. Now the other reason to doubt Putinism's longevity is what's old about it. The essence of Putinism is the essence of the regime that failed in the 20th century. It failed to modernize the Russian economy. It failed to normalize society. It failed to integrate Russia into the international community, as what Bob Zelik as called in a different context, but it's a good phrase, a responsible stakeholder. And that failure explains, looking backwards, why the Soviet system and Soviet state lasted how long? Seven decades. Three score and ten years. The biblical span of a single mortal life. Moreover, that monstrosity was not in the final analysis killed by its external enemies like those that Lieutenant Colonel Putin hunted down in Dresden and those he still obsesses about often with his his paranoid imagination from the Kremlin. Rather, that monstrosity died because of its own pathologies, its own unfitness for survival in the modern world. In short, precisely because Putinism is as our topic says, "Redux," That is a consensus, a conscious attempt to bring back from the past a model for Russia's future. It's doomed. But I want to end by making that same point a little bit more positively. Russia, thanks in no small measure to the surviving legacies of Gorbachev and Yeltsin and also a legacy of the Reagan administration, the Bush, 43, Bush 41 uh, administration, the Clinton administration, uh, and the Bush 42, uh, 43, uh, got to get those numbers right, uh, administration. The, Russia today is not the Soviet Union. It is not a monolith. It's bigger than Putinism. It's much bigger. It's also, despite the retrograde policies of its current leadership, more modern and more normal. So I would submit that the prescriptive challenge for us in the coming days is to brainstorm on how to punish, isolate, and contain Putinism while maintaining engagement with Russia as a whole. And Condi, I think that was the bottom line prescription that you suggested to us uh, in the panel discussion last night. Uh, Or to put it in Bob Gates's terms, uh, we have to find a way of containing and dealing with Putin uh, without breaking Russia. But the real fact is Putin himself is, if he stays in power for too long, going to break Russia himself.
1: Strobe Talbot, president of the Brookings Institution, former deputy secretary of state, thank you for being with the Aspen Strategy Group today. My pleasure. We've just had a fascinating conversation with former deputy secretary of state Strobe Talbot. I encourage you to visit the Aspen Strategy Group's website dedicated to last summer's meeting on the crisis with Russia, where you can purchase our book and with the full Ernie May Lecture by Strobe along with chapters by noted historians and political scientists Angela Stent, Megan O'Sullivan, Graham Allison, and of course Steve Hadley. Our webpage contains additional resources for those interested in the situation in Russia. Please be sure to check out a 90-minute video featuring a rich conversation that I had on Russia last summer in Aspen, Colorado with Madeleine Albright and Condoleezza Rice, both former Secretaries of State, and with Bob Gates, former Secretary of Defense, uh, in August of 2014. To continue the conversation, please follow our Twitter feeds, at Aspen Strategy, at R. Nicholas Burns, and at Strobe Talbot, that often feature content on Russia and many other key national security and foreign policy issues.
0: That was Nicholas Burns and Strobe Talbott. You can discover more about our programs at our website, aspeninstitute.org. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.